You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Uh, glad you're here. And I want to say, hey, a big thank you uh, to Marcus and to Colton. First of all, thank you for being willing to go and serve. But also, yeah, let's give them a hand. Uh, thank you for coming up here to tell us about it. And what I want you guys to know is, hey, this mission to Spain, this is something we are all doing together. And so about 20 people are going. It's up to the rest of us to support them in their going. So let's, let's do them. Let's let them feel our support. I also want to apologize in advance. Y'all, it's that time of year. And I've heard many coughs and sniffles amongst you as well. There's fellowship and suffering. Uh, y'all, my throat is hanging on by a thread. And so uh, I will do my best not to cough into the microphone, and we'll, we'll get through it uh, the best we can. And uh, if I have to cut the sermon short, then just don't look too happy about it, is all right, okay? Yeah, see, already. I knew, I knew it'd come from over here. I knew it. Uh, let's get out our Bibles. We're starting today the book of 2 Thessalonians, uh, continuing our study of 1 Thessalonians we did before Easter. Now, I know that was a couple weeks ago. And so I figured it would be good to review a little bit, not for you, but, you know, for the other people who maybe can't remember what we talked about even just two weeks ago or, you know, hard as it may be to believe, maybe even weren't even here for a few of those weeks. Again, not you, talking about other people, but let's review a little bit. What is going on in Thessalonians? Let's talk about the, the city, the city itself of Thessalonica. Y'all, this is a big city. It's the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. We think it had a population of probably about 100,000 people, which is a huge city for back then. It was prosperous. It was a powerful commercial center. They had a, a port the, on the Aegean Sea. It was also located right in the middle of an east-west highway called the Via Ignatia. And so you got this bustling economy with lots of tr sea trade, lots of trade over land coming in as well. It was a diverse city. So they estimate every day up to maybe 10,000 people came from thousands of miles away to trade and to travel. It was a very spiritual city. Uh, they had a, because of the busy port, it became a hotbed of religious pluralism, religious syncretism. And so most of the gods they worshiped were all the common Greco-Roman gods, but they had temples to gods as far away as Egypt and they had a large Jewish population there as well. So you've got a stable government. You've got a thriving economy, multicultural diversity. This was a place uh, that was attractive to Greeks, to Romans, to Jews. A lot of people wanted to live there. You can read about Paul's ministry there in Acts 17. Paul's ministry there was successful but short. He preached the gospel and it took fire. People believed, but then there was a backlash. And what happened is... What always happens when you threaten the religion and the gods of a city, you are also threatening the power and position and prosperity of the city. And so some of the city leaders, they riled up a, a crowd. They got a riot going and they drove Paul and his friends out in the middle of the night. So Paul, for now, he can't return. So you have an eager church, but a young church that's facing a lot of obstacles. And they've also got a lot of questions and so Paul wrote, he wrote 1 Thessalonians to give them hope in hard times. And essentially what he tells them is hope is found in the church. Hope is found in the Lord's return. 
since that first book, we think a few months has passed, no more than a few months, since the writing of 1 Thessalonians. And Paul is in Corinth, and probably during that time, he's getting reports back and forth from people coming and going about what's going on in Thessalonica. He finds out through these reports that a lot of the same concerns are still percolating around there. So he writes 2 Thessalonians to really hone in, really focus in on three issues. And you can kind of follow them chapter by chapter. So chapter 1 is really mostly about persecution. They got a lot of questions about why this is happening. It's hard. They're starting to lose hope. Chapter 2 is mostly about the return of the Lord. There's a lot of rumors floating around. There's a lot of bad theology floating around. It's only been about a few decades, maybe a couple decades, since Jesus' ascension. And already people are having questions. Has it happened already? Did I miss it? When's it going to come? Give me the details. What we find out, y'all, is that TV preachers really existed even before there was TV. You know what I mean? There's all kind of people, all kind of false teachers that come in with speculation. They're playing on people's fears. They're causing dissension. They're telling them, don't listen to that Paul. Paul's a nice guy. He meant well. Don't listen to him. Listen, I've got the real spiritual secret. Come follow me. And then chapter 3 is all about idleness. People were wrongly applying their eschatology. Now, this may be hard to believe, but apparently back then, some people got real obsessed with the study of end times, and then they got real weird, okay? <laughs> and so they, a lot of people there, they thought the Lord, return of the Lord is going to happen today. And so if it's going to happen today, I'm not going to work. Why would I go to work? And they would sell, they sold all their stuff. They sold everything they had. Why? I'm going to enjoy it while I can because Jesus is coming back, you know, today, maybe tomorrow at the latest. And that is making them disruptive. They're becoming burdensome to their city and to their church. And so Paul writes to address some of their practice, not just their theology. Now, that's a lot to deal with, isn't it? There's a lot going on there. If you're Paul, where do you even start? Well, you start the same place you always start with who God is. A.W. Tozer said, this is one of my favorite quotes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's more important than your circumstances. It's more important than your troubles and your trials. What you believe about God, listen, it both limits you and it launches you. It limits you because it sets the boundaries for what you think is possible in your life, what you think is actually going on in your circumstances. Nobody, no one in the history of the world will ever exceed their understanding of who God is. That can also launch us. So if you think about God rightly, you realize there's more than meets the eye. There's something bigger going on here, and it can give you hope beyond your current circumstances. So We're going to steal our big idea today from A.W. Here's our big idea. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God right here, right now, today, is the most important thing about you. With that in mind, let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll read the first four verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecution and in the, in, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. First thing I, I want us to notice in verse 1 is he addresses this letter to the church. And this is a big deal, y'all, because the fact that there is still a church there is a miracle. It defies all logic. And so Paul wants them to know that their church, it survives based on something way bigger than themselves. It survives because, he says, it is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that can sound like just some flowery, long title, Christianese. It's easy to just breeze past that. But y'all, if you fly past that title that he's throwing out there, you will miss the whole foundation of the book. All of Paul's instruction, all of his correction, all of his encouragement is going to be built on the foundation of those words that he just threw out right there. So let's break it down. He says, you are in God. For Paul, every letter he writes, everything he writes, y'all, this is the whole enchilada. It's those two words, in God or in Christ. We call it the doctrine of the union with Christ. It's all over the New Testament. So Colossians 3, 3. Paul writes, we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And just in case you don't ever read 2 Thessalonians or ever read Colossians, he mentions that same phrase, in God, in Christ, 163 times in 13 letters. Must be a big deal. Y'all, if any of you write me 13 letters and say the same thing, 163, 164, I forget, times, whatever it is, I'm going to write you back one letter and say, I get it. You can stop writing me. I understand, okay? What does it mean? You're in God. Or your life is hidden with Christ in God. It means from eternity past, there has been this perfect relationship of love in the Godhead, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And because of what Christ did, you are hidden within that relationship. Now, he doesn't mean hidden uh, like a bad thing. You're not contraband, okay? It's not like Jesus has you hidden in a suitcase, telling you, don't say a word. They can't know you're here. No, no, no. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He means hidden as in undistinguishable, unchanged from that relationship that goes back to eternity past. See, all that the father-son relationship has always been, you're in that. You're not in some lesser version. This isn't the free trial version. You're not on the JV team. Jesus made a way for you to participate in the perfect relationship from God with God that goes back to eternity past. He also says you're also, you're in God. He also says you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we got to pay attention when he says the Lord Jesus. He could have just said Jesus. He could have just said Jesus Christ. But he's going to use this phrase the, phrase, the Lord Jesus, 12 times in just this three chapter letter. More than any other New Testament epistle, that phrase shows up here. Why? Paul is shining a spotlight on Jesus's lordship. He is Lord. He is the king. He is the king that brings the kingdom. 
And we see this all over the Gospels. When Jesus started his ministry, he walked around saying, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. Why? Because I'm here. I'm the king. And the kingdom is wherever the king goes. And yet, and yes, there is a sense where God's kingdom extends geographically and physically to every corner of the universe, but his kingdom is uniquely present in his son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is also where we import, it's important to remember, this is why I pointed out the beginning, who is the letter addressed to? Not me individually, not you individually. It is addressed to the church. See, this, this book here, really both the Thessalonian letters, they're not individual self-help books. They're not even mostly books about individual sanctification. These are books of ecclesiology. Who and what is the church, this collective body and bride of Christ? He's saying here, the Lord Jesus Christ is uniquely present in his church. Now, many say, that, like I say, you know, the church is like an embassy. And that, there's some truth in that. So Paul in 2 Corinthians, he writes, he calls us ambassadors for the kingdom. But, you know, an embassy is really for a few government officials. You know, they're there to do business with a foreign land. And uh, really, they're there at the approval of the foreign leaders. That foreign leader really has ultimate power over them and their presence there. So I think Paul is kind of using a different analogy here. I think he's saying the church really isn't just an embassy. It's more like a colony. It is kingdom territory on earth. We are under the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, not some foreign leader. Our physical location may be in a foreign land, but our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Our daily lives, they're under the norms, the rules, the culture of this kingdom of God. And ultimately, we are under his rule. And here's why this was important for them to know and for us to know. Because, listen, the Thessalonians, there's all these crazy preachers telling them all kind of wacky theology about the end times. The politics of the city, it's turning against them. The city leaders, they think they're a danger to the city. And so every day on the nightly news, there it is, the latest installment of the Thessalonica culture wars. And in the midst of that, members of the church are losing heart, they're turning idle, they're getting lazy. And Paul speaks into all of this and says, listen, believers, your ultimate reality, what really defines you, it's not the news cycle, it's not the culture, it's not your church growth or, or even your own morality. It is way bigger. It is way bigger. You are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal king of the universe has set up a colony of his kingdom that you're a part of. So your life is not out of control. The Lord Jesus Christ is in control. So Paul is trying to teach them not to fear their circumstances, but also not to put their ultimate hope in their circumstances. He's telling us your hope is well-placed when your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what you think about God is the most important thing about you. It tells you who is real, really in control, and it tells you what defines you. So the next verse, verse 2, he reminds them of the state of their relationship. He says they have grace and peace. Now, peace, peace in the Bible, it's never about like yoga retreats and vacations and the odd weekend without kids. It's not that kind of peace. 
peace in the Bible is always about relationship. It's always relational. And so peace means you have a relationship with God. You are no longer his enemies. There's no longer any barrier or enmity between you and God. Now, what's interesting is this is almost the identical greeting that he gives in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. So if you go read 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, you don't even have to read very far, it will be exactly the same except for two differences. And they're important differences. The first difference is, difference is he adds the word our. It's our Father. Why is he doing that? Because again, the emphasis is on the collective church. The church is God's family. It's our Father, he's saying. The second difference is he specifies the source of the grace and peace. It's not my grace and peace. It's not your grace and peace. It is the grace and peace of God. Listen, my grace and peace, your grace and peace, that's going to be like spitting in a fire in the world we live in. But God has given you his. The very grace and peace of God has been given to you. So you, you put these together. What's he saying? As a family, we have a father who brings us together and equips us to live in his kingdom. And so it sounds like obvious to us. Verse 3, he gives thanks for them. But here's what's amazing. It's like he's got to justify himself giving thanks. He, he gives thanks for them, but then he says, we ought to do this. It's right for us to do this. Those phrases don't appear in any other epistle. He feels like he's got to justify why he's giving thanks for them. Why? Because again, gang, from, from an outside human perspective, it's kind of a mess. I mean, first of all, Paul doesn't even really know him that well. He was only there for a few weeks at most. There's some bad theology. There's some bad practice. There's lots of threats. There's lots of persecution. I mean, come on, Paul, is there really that much to be thankful for, you know? You know, I think, I think many of us, if we were writing this letter today, we may be hesitant to offer a lot of thanks. This, this situation here, it flies in the face of often what we picture the church should be. See, a lot of times we have the impression the church should be the happiest place on earth. You know, everyone's always growing. All the leaders are charismatic experts. Every experience is dynamic, no desire, unaddressed. You know, we have, we have the admiration and respect of the outside world. You know, it's not true. It's not the reality of the New Testament. Disney World is the happiest place on earth. They can have that title. The church is the most thankful place on earth. The most thankful place on earth, even in hard times, even in confusion, even in struggle. Say, so how, how is that possible? Because what you think about God is the most important thing about you. We're thankful for the same things Paul was, these internal and eternal realities, not just external and temporary circumstances. So he says he's thankful. He's thankful because the Lord Jesus Christ is multiplying himself in them. Look at what he's thankful for. He, he gives thanks for their growing faith. This word growing, it means flourishing. It's the word they would have used for like a tree or a child who is growing mature and healthy and strong. You may notice that verb, it's in the present tense. So it's not some destination that they already arrived at in the past. It is this ongoing growth and flourishing. And it's a word that is constantly used for the church. 
Again, we can look at Colossians. Colossians 2.19 says the whole body, that's the church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth, that's the same word, that is from God. So again, the picture we get in the New Testament isn't I grow and then you grow and we're just kind of beside each other. No, no, no. The picture is we grow. The body grows together. Now, have you ever wondered, have you ever thought, how do we grow in our faith? How do you make your faith grow? I mean, you just got mustered up somehow. Do you, is there a secret handshake you can do, a book you can read? How, how? I feel like my faith is weak. I feel like my faith is lacking. I mean, how, how can I make it grow? What you think about God is what grows your faith. You know, I used to work at a, a camp and I was in charge of the ropes course at this camp, which was ironic because I'm afraid of heights. But they didn't ask me that beforehand. They just put me in charge. So, uh, and of course, you know, you're up in the trees. It's high. You got kids coming through. And so all the time kids would come and they would get scared. And so it was my job to help their faith grow so they could let go of their death grip on that post and jump. You know what never worked? Just telling people they shouldn't be scared. Just tell, oh, you'll be fine. Trust me, just, you'll be fine. Go for it. Don't be scared. Never worked. You know what else never worked? Starting like a pep rally, you know. Everybody cheering for him. Yeah, you can do it. Go, go, go. Never worked. You know what did work? Helping them grow in the knowledge of the course and the equipment. So I'd say things like, hey, you don't weigh as much as an elephant, do you? They look at me like, great, I'm up here with a crazy person. <laughs> I say, look, look at these cables here. These cables, these are three-eighths-inch galvanized steel aircraft cable. They have seven by 19 construction. That means there's seven cables, each with 19 wires in them, all woven together, okay? So there's 133 wires up there holding you up. So... Even if you did weigh as much as an elephant, as long as you don't have a second elephant with you, it'll hold you up. You'll be great. And I say, look, you see those like bolts up there? And there's another one right there. This thing is double backed up. And so even if you weigh as much as an elephant and you brought an elephant with you, this thing is backed up twice. So you'll still be safe and it'll still hold you. Unless they, they were still scared, but their face would begin to change as they grew and they learned more about the object of their faith. See, growing your faith, it's not so much about your faith as it is about the object of your faith. And knowledge of the thing I'm putting my faith in causes that faith to grow. Jesus said this, John 17, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and you know me, his son. You know what Jesus is essentially saying there? Saying what you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's what he's saying. Men and women, you can't will your way into growing your faith, but you can know Jesus more and more. You can behold him. You can learn about him. You can learn about his grace and his peace towards you. You can learn about his power and his sovereignty and that he is Lord. And as you know him more and more, your faith will grow abundantly. And that is what is happening 
in Thessalonica. That is one of the reasons Paul is so thankful. Another reason he's thankful, is he says, is because of their increasing love. So this word increasing, it's a little different word. It means expansive. It can be translated as extends or abounds. And so the picture is almost like a flood over a floodplain as it spreads out. What's amazing about this, this one is an answer. It's a specific answer to prayer. Paul prayed for this back in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 12. And there's a reason this one follows growing faith. It's because what you think about God will also change what you think about people. Listen, you can't, you can't have growing faith in God without also having increasing love for people. Jesus himself, he tied these together. They came and they were you know, trying to quiz him and trap him, and that never went well for him. They asked, what's the most important commandment? Well, said, how about this? I'll give you a two-for-one deal. Buy one, get one free. First commandment, love your God. Second commandment is like it, love people. Next, Paul thanks God for their steadfastness. And you know, this, is, this shows up over and over in these books and really throughout the New Testament. It means endurance. It means perseverance. It means bearing up under a heavy weight that's pressing down on you. Now, Paul's looking at this very different than, than we do. We kind of have this winning culture, you know, where you have to always be successful, always growing, always thriving. If you aren't winning, you're losing. I heard that more than a few times from my coaches. Not in Christianity. In the New Testament, so many times the picture isn't to advance, but to remain. Not to conquer, but to endure. Not to prosper, but to persevere. You know, this church, I mean, so far, this church, what, what great external accomplishments do they have? I mean, they're not writing any epistles. They're not filling up the Colosseum with, you know, with events. They're not writing any number one Christian hits or number one Christian best-selling books. Yet, Paul says they boast about this church. The great Paul, Silas, and Timothy are boasting and bragging about this church to all the other churches. And they're saying, you wouldn't believe how amazing this church is. Why? How can they do that? Because they are steadfast in persecution and afflictions. Because adversity didn't shrink them, it grew their faith and love. It hasn't crushed them, they've, they've bore up under its weight. And I, I wish it were different, y'all, but this is how it works so often. Richard Wormbrand, he's a, he was a Romanian pastor in the 40s when the communists took over Romania. And when the communists took over, they kind of gathered all the pastors. And they said, hey guys, you work for us now. You're going to be our tool. You just do what we say. But Wormbrand, he wouldn't stand for it. <laughs> he really didn't have much of a choice. So he talks about the time, you know, the time they rounded up all the pastors. He comes home and he tells his wife. He said, my wife Sabina told me, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting on his face. I said to her, if I do so, you lose your husband. She replied, I do not wish to have a coward as a husband. Hello, man. Now what, that one, the quote I originally planned on sharing, but I read that, I was like, wow. So with that encouragement from his wife, he spent the next 14 years in prison facing relentless torture for his faith. Finally, he was 
Somebody ransomed, they paid him a bunch of money to get him out of prison, and he fled the country. He went on to found a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs, where he went on to document stories from the underground church all over the world. He wrote a bunch of books. One of his books, he wrote this, Persecution has always produced a better Christian, a witnessing Christian, a soul-winning Christian. Communist persecution has backfired and produced serious, dedicated Christians such are rarely seen in free lands. These people cannot understand how anyone can be a Christian and not want to win every soul they meet. See, what happened in Romania and what happened in Thessalonica is that persecution produced a better Christian. How? Because what they thought about God became the most important thing about them. It launched them beyond their current sufferings to be able to see the bigger picture. And I wish this were an isolated teaching, but it is all over the New Testament. The Lord Jesus uses our present afflictions for something greater. We see it in the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians, Paul writes that the opposite of true is true of how it seems. He says, afflictions are a clear sign that those who are persecuting us will face judgment. And it's a clear sign that those who are being persecuted will be saved. Well, put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's backwards, isn't it? James 1, 2, and 4 says, trials are a source of joy. Joy. Why? Because God uses them to make us perfect, to make us complete, to make us lack nothing. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says, our trials, they purify and they refine our faith like gold. So you want to grow in your faith? Experience trials. So I think it's worth asking. I think it's worth asking for ourselves, which would you rather have? An easy life or abundant and increasing faith and love? A comfortable life or participation in God's kingdom? And make no mistake, women, men and women, this is not a question we can avoid. These are the questions our culture will force us to answer because our culture will offer us every option, every opportunity, every experience and say, just pursue these things and you can be happy. Your kids can be successful. You'll have the good life. And the Bible begs us over and over, don't take that deal. It says the world is making promises it cannot deliver on. Instead, the Bible says the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings grace and peace. And he is bringing a kingdom where neither moth nor rust will destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. He is bringing his kingdom and with it comes an eternal glory that far outweighs any of our current light and momentary struggles. Do you believe that about God this morning? Or do you believe, as I sometimes find myself doing, that God is just some kind of combination vending machine and drug rep here to give me something that'll make me happy in the moment and ease my pain. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Do you believe you're part of the body of Christ this morning? Part of a church that is a colony for God's kingdom? Or do you believe it's just me and God doing our own thing? Either way, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Has Christ hidden you with him in that eternal relationship with the Godhead? Or are you still on the outskirts, still trying to earn your way in? Either way, 
What you think about God is the most important thing about you. What about your trials? What about your afflictions today? Is it because God's asleep at the wheel or maybe not powerful enough to stop it or maybe he's just angry with you? Or is he the Lord Jesus Christ who is sovereign and who works all things for the good of those who love him? Either way, what you think about God this morning is the most important thing about you. So maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're here and lately this week, man, you've been focusing on your circumstances, focusing in on what's right in front of your face and maybe you're not liking what you're seeing. What's in the news every day, your trials, your, your afflictions. Let me invite you this morning to shift your focus. Shift your focus to the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend some time beholding him this morning. Let him be the most important thing about you. Because you know what you'll find? You know what we find when we turn our focus to the Lord Jesus Christ? We find this king, creator of the universe, humbled humbled himself and became a man. And then he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was a king anointed for a cross. And in him we find all these things that Paul is talking about. In him we find perfect faith. In the garden he prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I'm willing to follow you, God, wherever you lead me. And he went, and on the cross, he, he said, into your hands, God, I commit my spirit. And he went even into the grave, trusting in God to bring new life from death. In him, we see perfect love. The Bible says it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. Well, what was that joy? It was his bride. It was you and me, the church. See, he he didn't have to do that for himself. He didn't need to face sin and death for himself. He was just fine. It was us that was in need. He did it for us. And in him, we see perfect endurance. Jesus made it clear, no one takes my life from me. I am willingly offering it up. And so he endured every beating, all the humiliation, all the mocking, all the pain. And at any moment, he could have called down legions of angels to smite everyone in sight and end it. But worse than the beatings, he endured all of God's wrath that was due to us for our sin. He endured it all. I want you to know, if you are here this morning and you believe that about Christ, that's the most important thing about you. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done. It doesn't matter if you're winning or if you're just barely surviving. It doesn't matter if you've been running from God your whole life or if you've been trying for years to earn his favor by your own morality. If you believe today that the Lord Jesus Christ is God who became man, who died for your sins and rose again and invites you into his kingdom, then what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And men and women, the only thing left for us to do is to walk out those doors and live like it's true. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.